when mic stand is don't say anything that we want to record. Shit piece of equipment. Okay. How's it going, Eugene? I'm good. I am good. I think one thing I was thinking is like we probably should find some sort of like initial banter topic to like ease our way in. You don't like right now, our existing banter topics? Well, there is none. It's like literally whatever comes out of your mouth, whatever you spew out of your mouth in the first. Whoever asks how the other person is doing just kicks it off. I'm okay with that. You you want it to be something more solidified? Like, I mean, it's literally the same. Oh, you know what? Maybe this in itself has created the intro we will use this week. I mean, it is. It is clearly yeah. going to be the intro that we use this week. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity for us to sound off on one another and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and you want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash making. So my story this week comes courtesy of The Next Web, who brought to light a story about a air quotes designer who had been working at an agency in Russia called Art Lebedev Studio, Russia's largest design company. Anyways, over the course of the year, this quote-unquote designer worked on some 20 commercial projects, creating a lot of logos, branding elements as such. So this employee known as Nikolai Ironov turns out to not exist. It was part of an AI system that was conceived by the studio. And what's interesting is prior to the unveiling that, hey, you know what, this person isn't an actual human, it's an AI system, pretty much all the clients were happy with the work, right? And Sergei Kulikovich, the studio's art director said, many of our clients were extremely happy with all this buzz in the media around the project. But what is even more interesting is that many of them were happy with the result before they knew about Nicolay. Oh, is it Nikolai or Nicolay? I'm not sure. It's I do not know. Yeah. Because if it was an I, then I'd be more familiar. But I'll go with Nikolay. All of our Russian listeners, you can yeah. email Eugene at Eugene yeah. at Macon.com. So Sergey went on to say that this was essentially an experiment to show that, quote unquote, synthetic design built by machine can be used and loved by clients. And the way the system worked was it was trained to understand context and create the necessary branding as well as export the necessary files for usage. And it was this part I'm less familiar about. The system was trained on hand-drawn data sets of SVG icons, scalable vector graphics, which for me, which for me, I'm just more familiar with traditional like, you know, vector like Adobe Illustrator files. Right? Yeah, it's similar. So, it's similar. It's basically that. Scalable, but I think right? what yeah. they means is just that it was trained on a library of custom components that it could work with. 
And those yeah. were made by the designers, is my understanding, like made by the studio. As in the original yeah. components were not generated by the AI. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of that, an algorithm would come in and help with the scale, smooth in, simplify design, and offer a few different variations. So, Did you also mention the bit where they're also trained on text about the company? Oh, I, I missed that part. I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Yeah. So besides being trained on a library of graphic components, it was also able, or it is also able to analyze text that you give about a company, such as like what you have on an about page. Yeah. 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 So in short, the work process, which I don't think is that far off from traditional, I guess, workflow is that the system would spit out, let's say nine different graphics, right? Of varying directions. And you as the client would just pick the one that you probably like the most, right? Yeah. And with the one you pick, and the one you like the most, you could take that narrator and iterate upon it, or you could just keep it as is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the back to Sergey, the art director, he's like, not everything is perfect. But what's interesting about this is that when you introduce AI, it has a different perspective on what is good design, right? It that's almost, because it has almost no perspective. Exactly. And that's almost the interesting thing because it unbreaks some of the traditional learnings that come with you know, just being an educated graphic designer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And one thing they also mentioned is that while Nicolet, the AI system, never gets sick, has no artistic blocks, and can work around the clock, that's not actually the most interesting part of its implementation. What they really hope for is that with this AI system, what you're doing is you're essentially offering a tool that has no quote unquote fear, right? It just mm -hmm. can come in. It doesn't have to worry about failure. It doesn't have to worry about feedback. It can just like iterate and it's up to you to choose the one that makes the most sense for your brand. In general, yeah. that's how we do a lot of projects at Adam Studios. It's taking into consideration the different insights from the client and then, you know, hey, direction one, two, three, Right. Yeah. It could be multiple directions. I'm sure you work the same way. Yeah. And then yeah, you yeah. just, it's a process of like, as I like to call it, opening and closing doors. Like you start with, you know, three open doors, you close two or you close one and a half and then you keep going. And one thing that I, I did sort of recognize, and I think this is what, what they addressed too, is like the graphics that they came up with were, I mean, they're not really nice, I would say. But then again, if the client likes it, then the client likes it. That's also part of the soft science of being in, in client services, right? Well, I think they address that as well. Like they say that the ugliness is almost the point because the studio said, well, we could train it to make something that's more one aesthetic or the other, but we don't train it that way because the designer can do that. Like the human designer can do that. So we'd rather have the AI make these things that are relatively ugly almost, or just out there. I think of it as like a tool for generating more focused inspiration because actually mm -hmm. a lot of the start of my projects involve doing a bunch of research online, looking at competitor logos, looking at Pinterest, looking at, you know, all of this other visual inspiration. And then the, this AI tool can make that for me like on yeah. the spot and it's more tailored. Like I don't have to go through a bunch of different image archives to like find yeah something ultimately for me the one thing that 
I think is really important for people in client services to succeed is understanding nuance, like client nuance. Like what is the perspective that has a nuance that is not driven by something that's out there currently in terms of like data and information. And it's something that might only emerge from very in-depth and pointed conversations. This is the thing that we've, we've talked about in the past as well, is that in terms of how the AI presents itself and how it iterates and learns, I think that's the most critical part because I'm not discounting the fact that at some point the system can get better, right? And this is something that I didn't include, but I was thinking about including was the launch of the new open AI. It's hard, like, I'm not obviously an AI expert, but basically the new... Are you talking about GPT-3? Yeah. I don't have like a full understanding of it and so therefore cannot... Yeah. So in short, OpenAI is a company (laughs) co-founded by Elon Musk. And what it does is like with this new language model, what it allows you to do is basically handle much more context-driven problems and requests and do it at a much higher level. And for a lot of people, they think this is massive. Like people look at it and and see it as literally like the the AI that you see in sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking. I can read something from CNBC. So the tool that's been developed is a piece of software called GPT-3, which stands for Generative Pre-Training. And it's a language generation tool that like you said, is really amazing because it can produce very human-like text. And so it analyzed vast quantities of the internet and learned everything about, you know, how words follow each other. And according to people who've seen what it can produce, it is extremely coherent and it can write. It can write fiction stories, press releases, interviews, essays. It it could probably write making stories for us, to be quite honest, like, I have no doubt that it's capable of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So the one thing that I wanted to lead into in terms of my own sort of opinion around it is how should we feel about what we once saw as like the sacred space, like creativity? How should we feel when there's an encroachment of technology and AI into it? And will it make the work better? This is sort of a a revisitation of something we had discussed in the past because we talked about this in in relation to like photo editing, I think. Yeah, I think so. Has my stance on AI changed? I'm trying to remember what my stance on AI used to be. I wouldn't say that I'm like in fear of people's jobs because I think there is still a leap, like you said, between production and then application of that to specific scenarios. You know, like with Nicolet, this design AI, you still have to address brand stories and mission and vision with those logo and graphic elements. And the AI is not trained to do that. And in the future, it might be, you know. Mm -hmm. But also something the studio didn't talk about is that in the one year where they were using Nicolet, I believe that they were still presenting the ideas to the client. Yeah. Like as in the humans in the studio were presenting the ideas. And that's also part of that design process. It's not just production of design. It's also selling the design and telling the story about why it makes sense. 
Yeah. Right. That's and like the soft science part of it. Like the. What I'm concerned is, you know, with a lot of tech tools, and I say this so much, it's not that anything is inherently evil or good. It's that how is this thing used? How's the tool used? And the concern with like GPT-3 that's really obvious is that it can be used to generate couldn't have done. Okay. So I'm not saying that AI text tools shouldn't exist, but I am concerned like once it's widely released and out in the world, you know, how are bad actors going to use this tool? And like the design AI doesn't concern me in the same way because I don't, I don't look at those design graphics. I don't, immediately see like a you know like this the same level of malicious intent like for using it so that's like if you're asking like do i get upset about anything like is there something to be upset about like i would say that's the concern i think you would agree that in terms of mainstream like creative work i think there's a miss understanding of how it's created how long it be created and the process behind it so i i like we've seen this before where oh, people yeah. think that oh you just show show up with like a camera yeah, and yeah, you yeah, just yeah. like yeah spit yeah, something yeah, out yeah. right like oh like, there's this is gonna very take little you an coordination. Hour, right? same thing like with that. design like oh it's just a logo it's just like you know so like if you already are undervaluing the human effort yeah. and time it takes and you already don't value it as it should be, then what does it mean when AI comes in? And yeah. it's like, it it's almost as though, well, like I can just get a computer to do it, right? And this is maybe on the very bottom level of people who on a branding visual side don't really care that much. Like I'm talking about things that, you know, you're a local mom and pop restaurant, you honestly just need a graphic, right? It doesn't even matter if it's nice or not. You just need something. So I think that we, while we might work in this mid to high tier world of graphic design, right? There's also a ton of graphic design that needs to be serviced below and that doesn't require the same level of intricacy, exploration and nuance. I mean, to be honest, like the way I feel, if clients feel, if companies feel that way, they are completely welcome to use the AI to generate their design needs because that frees up the designers that would have been doing that work to do something else. I, I But I disagree because I think that this work would never entice you and or be of interest oh, to you. Oh, come on. Like, okay, not me, Sharice, but there are so many designers that do work like this to like pay the bills, right? Like if you think about Fiverr, okay? Like OpenAI is a replacement for Fiverr, which no. I am completely fine with. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Is like, I think that people like yourself that operate on the it's almost like this like it's literally the bifurcation like this is what the internet has done it's literally forced us into two different paths it's like the high end and the low end so like the high end is protected as is most luxury for the most part like i would mm-hmm. i wouldn't call like when i mean luxury i just mean things that are of like higher budgets yeah more involvement and then the low end it's gonna yeah. fundamentally yeah. shift just like how you know the middle range of restaurants got carved out and got pushed into fast casual open ai is kind of the replacement for that whole bulk of stuff and like i said if i'm churning out logos that don't require a lot of human touch a lot of like logos and branding that's where i think this is most concerning 
because the lack of and I, I don't say this in a pejorative way, but like I think the lack of education on that sort of lower end and the type of work done by certain designers in that but, realm and the clients that But what is your concern? Is your concern they, they here for with, those designers very losing income to being because they're not going to have those clients to pay the bills anymore? Or is your concern about like overall design landscape? Like I do. Okay. More the first one. More, more the first one. Cause in, in theory, open AI and this stuff here probably works. Yeah. I best guess the question is on more is AI commoditized type outcomes? in creative spaces that generate design and text going to take away jobs from young designers and writers and creators? I guess that's the big question. Well, I think that before you even get to that route, you have to look at the global marketplace, right? And if you look at a Fiverr, a freelancer.com, I would assume there's been a downward pressure on pricing because the whole world is a marketplace. Stuff like this is... Yet another chapter in yeah. the downward pressure on yeah, costs but, and wages. I mean, there are already there are already so many challenges to being a young creative. Like it's hard for me to evaluate whether this is like a significant threat. I mean, even though we're at this point where this design studio was using this AI, it's not something that's like readily It might not be now, but I think at some point it will be. But I also would would I mean, this is more like forward thinking. It's that if you come into the space literally as someone that pushes yeah. pixels, unfortunately, I think that that's not good enough because I think that I think that what you need to do is really, and I've, I think I've mentioned this before, is like understanding implementation strategy and context is probably a creative's most powerful tool. And it's the thing that is maybe the hardest to sell, but it reveals itself in conversation with clients, with your peers. And maybe you can speak from your own experience, Sharice. Knowing, I mean, people probably, if they've listened to Making It Up, they know that you have a very sort of cerebral mindset and, you know, this this awareness around how things work. And how has that influenced how you create? Because I think that that's a good example of someone that can incorporate both the design part and the implementation slash point of view on where you should go as a company or as a brand. And this is something that I don't know if at yeah. this current point in time, like an AI system can help because you're starting to layer on more and more complexity. And I think to use an example, like we talked about this a long time ago, it's like the more things that you have in terms of complexity, the higher the barrier to entry, right? So like if you and I are both pixel pushers, very easy to replace. But if like Sharice does strategy on top of that, then that in itself allows you a point of differentiation. I mean, young designers don't get into graphic design because they want to be pixel pushers. So they're not going to be particularly upset about AI replacing that job in terms of pixel pushing and mass generating variations of logos with slight changes in color and size and fonts like that's not what young designers get excited about so what i think is the question though is like uh, when i started out i did a lot of pixel pushing as well in order to get to the point where i am now 
if AI replaces that tier, then how do I get an entry level job? How do I get my first foothold? If my first foothold used to be pixel pushing, that's a really good. Yeah, that, question, that's yeah. my that's my thought because young designers don't want to be in that place anyway. They're only there as a transition to something else, to the greater strategy, like you're saying about implementation and context. But they don't get to start out there. So what then becomes the starting point? You know, maybe maybe the temporary phase is actually like overseeing the AI, which is, I don't know, kind of almost equally not exciting as the pixel yeah. pushing. It's not Checking worse AI, or better. It, I mean, there's still there's still this human component, like I said, about you, well, you make a data set, you feed the AI text and images yeah. and components, and then you look at what it produces and you make a selection and then you present the selection. Maybe that turns out to be the entry level you know, five years from now that entry level designers are doing that. And actually like I'm working it out in my head and that's probably a better starting out point because what it is is it trains your ability to curate and defend your curation. Well, maybe this is it. It's that we're going to need to see entry level graphic designers come to the table with a different set of skills relative to their peers from 10, 20 years ago. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, entry level designers right now have different skills and concerns than I did like five years ago. Like it's, it moves faster than that. What I'm trying to say is that I think that in general, the, the core skill set yeah, has still pretty big not lead. really changed except for going from analog to digital, right? But I think the next part of it is like, do you have to add the ability to program on top of that? Because now you're going to be looking at uh, different products you need to create. But I so feel like, like that suggestion of learning to program and code is still this technical challenge. It's still like a like a software skills question, you know, from before when you were able to cut and lay out books analog like physically versus like using InDesign to coding that's still just like a skill you learn whereas mm -hmm. the essential bit of design mm -hmm. of looking at visual things and understanding how it makes sense in a wider context like that doesn't change so i do think yeah. that overall design landscape you know i asked earlier mm -hmm. like what is your concern like whether this will take oh, yeah. away income or the overall design landscape i do think that ai might for a while make things more boring where we might find ourselves where companies are all using the same AI engines and data sets. And, but we also kind of reach that way with humans as well, where a lot of designs you looked at. Yeah. And, and AI might exacerbate that. I mean, so Instagram like, aesthetic is see. a thing, right? You have any final thoughts? I mean, on the client side, because we've talked primarily on the designer side as a client, depending on the type of client you get, one thing's they're paying for time and another thing, and the more savvy ones, and this is not even like some massive like revelation, it's like the other ones are paying for outcomes. So in this, it's kind of a win-win. You might have access to more outcomes, potential outcomes in terms of options, and your ability to choose that one could be significantly reduced. It might take you, I'm making this up, but like, depending on how fast certain people work, it might take, you know, seven days for the exploration process. 
and after those seven days, you might have three really well-developed examples. Those three examples themselves might miss the mark. And like, you've just spent seven days doing that. But the flip side is that if this AI system can spit out, you know, 25 different options Mm -hmm. within 12 hours, already you have more repetition and more time to iterate because you have another, you know, six and a half days to go through this and, you know, arrive at something you really like. That would satisfy clients because they really, they push the human studios to perform at an unrealistic pace anyway. Speaking of clients. My subject this week is quantifying what matters most to the new fashion and luxury consumer. And this is a white paper produced by High Society and Boston Consulting Group. They had done a white paper together back in 2017. And then the research for this started actually at the end of 2019, pre-COVID-19, and then sort of extended through the pandemic and post-pandemic. So they had an opportunity to get a before and after snapshot, which I feel like I didn't see enough of in the numbers, but that's kind of an aside. So anyway, High Snob and BCG did research on what they see to be at the center of luxury's future, which is culture, which when I first read that, I thought that sounds so broad. But essentially, they have observed that brands which have credibility Mm. have lasting relationships with consumers and they don't broadcast solely to their target consumer but broadcast to the broader culture and in i think a key observation so i cut overall i'm going to try to lean more on giving stats like giving research numbers because that's the part of this white paper i was more interested in to be honest rather than some of the bits which are analysis of mm-hmm. those numbers. I'm curious, like, you think the stats are more interesting than the analysis? I don't disagree with the analysis. I just didn't find the analysis to be significantly of more value. Yes. I. They also provided numbers. They also just provide charts and graphs, which okay. is great. And maybe this is just me as yeah, a yeah, reader. I'm, I'm like I'm not trying it, yeah. to. I'm not really trying to roast High Snob and BCG here. Like yeah. I appreciate the research they did. I think it was great to do this white paper and to see what the luxury consumer looks like. Like that's really wonderful. I just mm-hmm. did not personally get a ton out of the analysis, the written analysis portions. Of the piece, yes, I actually do have a criticism of it, but it's not the key point. I'm gonna point come here. back to that. So they open with this, this figure: sixty-one percent of the luxury market will be composed of millennials and Gen Z by 2026, up from 39 percent in 2019. So this kind of just makes sense mathematically, because. Millennials and Gen Z, people born between 1981 and 2004, will get older in the next six years and therefore have the income to spend. But it is still interesting to think about. And that's like kind of the whole rationale of why this research should exist, right? Which is that a large portion of the luxury market is going to be different generationally. And it's 
interesting to me in general. Part of the other reason I picked this was just to get a better understanding of younger people and where their minds are at overall, not just about luxury. So the methodology, which I'm just going to briefly say, since this is a white paper, is that they surveyed around 7,000 traditional luxury consumers and then around 1,900 high snobiety audience consumers. And then they also interviewed what they call cultural pioneers, industry executives, and experts. And their survey respondents were split between different age groups and also across the world, so globally. Okay, so one of the pages that I found the most interesting is if you're looking at the PDF, it's page 14, but the print version, the page number is 2627. And it's this desirability matrix. And they break it down between Gen X, older millennials, younger millennials, and Gen Z. And what attributes for luxury brands result in desirability, okay? Like for those different generations. And so for example, Gen X is the only group that said quality was a major driver for a brand's desirability. And the other three groups all said that that was like minimum requirement here. And younger millennials were the most like demanding, which I found quite interesting. And they said major drivers of desirability include status signal, timelessness, curation, bought by friends and community, emotional connection, worn by KOLs, creative partnerships, and personalization of product. So I... KOLs being key yes, opinion KOLs leaders. meaning key opinion. Influencers, basically. So what I think, I mean, I'm pretty sure that this chart to you is like a no-brainer, like something that's just sort of intuitive already. But I still appreciate seeing it spelled out that way. And it really does reflect that younger consumers are much more interested in how brands relate to their social circle and these sort of abstract things an emotional connection and having and having an emotional connection which is like I, I read that and i think it makes sense because i too as i qualify as younger millennial in this survey would want to have an emotional connection to brand but then if i ask myself like how does a brand foster that i feel like the answer is not clear cut yeah when i look at the matrix itself it generally feels pretty straightforward when when i look at the desirability matrix like it all kind of makes sense the one thing i am curious about is how many of these traits are based off of how Mm. old you are meaning if you ask gen z in 10 years when they become the same age as a younger millennial will they shift into similar things because when i look at some of this i would almost argue that everything i'm not gen z obviously but I could see myself caring more about this stuff when I was a Gen Zer. So it makes me That's question really whether or not question. we actually have these clear-cut silos. Because the reality of the situation is that, like, there are certain things you care about when you're, you know, 15, just learning about fashion and streetwear. When you're 22, when you have a few years under your belt, and you know, by by age yeah. 35, when you have a family and kids. This shit doesn't matter yeah, no, anymore. Totally. I completely agree. And the reason we use generation markers anyway is to show not something about age, 
but supposedly about your generation, right? So we're not talking generically about a difference in being young or mid thirties or whatever, but supposedly, depending on the time you were born and grew up in, you have different values. So you, I think you have a completely valid question, and I would kind of connect that to. Yeah. I didn't pre-prepare this, but what you said, like the subject is reminding me that I was recently reading this article in the New York Times about the founder of Zero Hour, which is a youth-led group advocating for climate action. Her name is Jamie Margolin, and she's now 18. And she says somewhere in this interview, I'm just like skimming it right now, that climate change is just a fact of teenagers' lives that they grow up with that and that's a key difference mm -hmm. between you know her being 18 now and me when i was 18 back then when i was 18 and so how much of this survey relates to values like that because they could so that when i look at this whole list a lot of these things are very independent of the world as we see it except for sustainability I think sustainability is the one that has crept into like our social consciousness over the last but few But some years. of them could be related to sustainability that are not spelled out in this survey and maybe not even spelled out by the survey respondents, depending on the questions that they were asked. Like, for example, creative partnerships, you know, it could be creative partnerships with sustainable organizations that result in greater desirability. I know I'm just like conjecturing here, but we don't we don't actually know. Like what drives? I look at this and I, I, I think it says a whole lot of nothing in that a lot of these things that you see are just so, so driven by your age group, right? Like Gen X not caring about if things are bought by friends and community. Well, obviously when you're a Gen Xer and you have a family, like the last thing you're doing is hanging out with people based off of interest. And I think you start to change into a world where you're hanging out with people based off of like, do these parents have a kid that goes to the same school as mine? Right. But I think if we're talking about, but I think if we're talking about luxury for Gen X, there's still that okay, maybe not friends and community, but there was still this opportunity that to them it is attractive to have creative partnerships or worn by key opinion leaders or having an emotional connection. Like specifically when I think about luxury goods. Well, I I see that, but also think that it's more a byproduct of like where does your attention go? Like your attention when you're at that age, like. Speaking from someone that was like kind of in the in the belly of the beast in a way, like fuck, that's a really bad way of putting it. But you know what I mean, right? Like Lol, literally in the belly of the like beast. literally fucking right down like at ground zero, and like I think that these are all things that if I covered up and didn't didn't say anything like in terms of With this, an age I just bracket? replaced like. Gen Z, younger millennial, older millennial, and Gen X, and just replaced it by age groups. How did you feel at, you know, between 12 mm -hmm. to 18, 18 to 28, 28 to 35, and 35 to whatever? And I could guarantee I would probably have some sort of lineup that'd be very similar to but this. But I would argue that there's still something behind this that is values-driven, but that is not revealed by this survey. I was going to say the actual real, real reason I picked this subject is because Lifestyle Asia picked us as one of five menswear podcasts to listen to and i'm trying to live up to it you know i'm trying to i'm trying to give the readers what they want 
We're so far, but thank you to Randy Lai of Lifestyle Asia for putting us on the list. We're, we're so far from menswear. Okay, so if you scroll down, you know, it talks about the consumer journey. And it says that Gen Z spends 50% of their purchase journey on seeking inspiration and inspiring others post-purchase rather than on more directly purchase-related activities. And again, like you could say, maybe this is related to a youth thing, but it's also very specific to this particular time of social media and everyone being online a lot because there's no... There's no real distinction between when you're actually shopping for something and when you're just online, which I think this data shows. And I like that as something to think about when thinking about media, because I think we kind of know this already in abstract, but that editorial, even editorial that Macon produces can result in the purchase of products. Not that that is really ever our intention, but we do cover a lot of brands and creators of consumer goods. I mean, if you didn't believe in the person's story, which trickles down into the product, then we probably wouldn't do the story. Oh, no, definitely. You're right that making isn't a vehicle to sell things, but by virtue of showcasing someone's story that relates to a product there's a direct correlation or relationship there but i think there. that i mean vehicle to sell things is ambiguous but even if we are not crafting Macon as a vehicle to sell things readers use Macon as a vehicle to buy things and and not like they come to Macon and it's like oh let's find out what's the mm-hmm. latest product yeah. to buy but i definitely think that Macon factors into people's purchase decisions. If you just go down to the last chart, again, I was looking mainly at Gen Z here because that was my own interest. And so I just wanted to highlight the top most important sources of inspiration that Gen Z noted when it comes to brand channels, like the way brands talk to consumers. And so Gen Z said that what's most important to them are physical brand stores, the brand website and brand apps, and then the where brands are on social media. And those were like the top three factors. And something that I found interesting about that is that those are all brand controlled mm-hmm. places as opposed to like not directly brand controlled and that was against my intuition yeah because it kind of relates back to what we talked about last week and in last week's discussion we talked about how people are looking for community where it happens kind of with the brand but the brand isn't directly looking over your shoulder versus me going to a store a website an app that is directly me in your garden yeah so looking at these numbers it just didn't align with my assumption, which is probably why surveys are necessary anyway, because if you just go off of your assumptions, that's not data driven. And I guess it's, what is it? It's, it's like a focus on what brands say about themselves. I don't, I also don't know what, how the question was phrased though. This is just the most important sources of inspiration by generation. 
the one thing I still can't really get behind is that I think there needs to be a separation of inherent human values and interests versus societal and cultural change. Like I think those two actually need to be separated because there are certain things that pertain to humans in general that regardless of what generation you're born into, Mm -hmm. it'll always exist, right? So like luxury is not something that was started 10 years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Luxury has pretty much existed since you had the ability to show status, right? So that in itself, Mm -hmm. I would expect that to be quite similar from age group to age group. Mm -hmm. The things that change are things that are much more culturally driven. This to me would be more interesting. It's like, how important is a brand's position on race equality, sexism? I think those pillars are probably more interesting to determine what the difference is. Because I think that the stuff that is inherently driven by innate human qualities, that shouldn't change too much. Like That's almost a very predictable outcome. What's not predictable is the stuff that is, as you mentioned, like, hey, climate change is something that a 10-year-old knew from the day they were born or the first day they kind of consumed a piece of media. Versus if you're 45, maybe this is something that's only entered your vocabulary as of 10 years ago. I mean, this kind of gets to, I mean, it doesn't, I'm just stretching it to get it to this. Because I kind of see where you are as like a a good criticism of this research and what could have potentially been more insightful or at least more insightful to us, you know, like having those data points. And this is this is my main criticism of this white paper that now that we have kind of reached the end of like my highlights from it that I have is that they really put a lot of emphasis on this sector of cultural pioneers throughout the entire paper and they define their cultural pioneers as the high snobiety audience that they drew respondents from for the survey. And I really take issue with this methodology and also the presentation of Mm -hmm. the data of that audience as like prioritization. Like throughout the survey, they put, you know, everyone else's responses and then like VS, like cultural pioneer responses and i just don't i don't see the value in that sector the way that this white paper sets it up that you should so if i understand correctly your bone to pick is that you think this whole white paper is really just to push the influence of high snobiety yes whoa whoa can you say it with a little more confidence yes yes i agree with you i agree with you i think that is just like nested in there and if it hadn't been yeah, I would just would have appreciated the white paper more. You just felt there wasn't enough neutrality around it, which is fair. I mean, I, I do think there is some sort of like co-opting here, right? There's a there's a exchange here. BCG gets yeah. access to a world they probably can't really touch, right? And then Heisen Body also has the ability to get quality with quotation marks. Um, because like I said, I think they're missing the mark in terms of Uh, how to approach this type of investigation. I'm not opposed to interviewing specific people Um, for anecdotes and for like their expert opinion or perspective. But I take issue with identifying a particular set of audience that is ambiguously named cultural pioneers within high society's audience 
without further caveat in terms of like who these trailblazers are and who these trailblazers are and where they come from. And then throughout the survey, positioning it as the most important data. Because there's definitely overlap between the high snobiety demographic and like a high beast demographic, not perfectly, but there's overlap. So like you wouldn't go and say the cultural pioneers of high peace slash high snobiety. But I also wouldn't define any data set as cultural pioneers. Like as in, it's not additionally informative to me to know that. Like what's more informative to me would be, for example, like knowing someone's profession or like interests even. Like if I knew that a certain group of the survey respondents were like particularly interested, like they listed themselves that their interests were design and architecture and I don't know, finance or whatever. Like that is more informative to me than to know. Literally all I know is that these people read high snobiety and that's it. So that, that's my bone to pick. I'm sorry that it's become like such a big highlight. There was some stuff in here that I thought was interesting, but not enough, which is funny because I still picked it as my subject for this week. Can I ask? If yeah. there was like a make in times insert consulting group here type of white paper, what would you be interested or curious to find out? I'm thinking about it. Give me a second. There are three things that I think about in connection to companies a lot and that we talk about at Makin as well, like between the two of us about what Makin does. And those are transparency, contribution, like audience contribution. And what was my third one? Darn it, they're action, like social action. Okay, and I don't have solid answers, which is why I would want to know more. I would want to know more about what people of any age and generation want from brands in concrete terms. Like what does transparency mean to the audience? Like what do they want to see delivered? What kind of social justice related Mm -hmm. actions do they want brands to be involved in? Does that mean like giving money? Does it mean setting up a nonprofit? Does it mean partnering with existing nonprofits? And, you know, brands and companies talk a lot about wanting more community contribution, but what does the actual consumer reader audience person want to contribute? Like, and do they actually really care that much? Like, we assume that they do a lot that they care about contributing to a company and like a company's futures. But I would just want to see like, how much do they care in relation to other things? And what do, what do they want that contribution to look like? So that that's me off the top of my head. I did not pre-prepare that answer. For me, the one thing I find most interesting is to investigate what is the future of consumerism Mm. relative to the economic future we're looking at so meaning one you know if wages are stagnating and number two you kind of see in parts of the western world like america is starting to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. find itself in this this movement around socialism right and how will that influence our consumer habits when this let's say you're 15 to 17 years old and suddenly socialism's been put on your plate how will that impact your buying behaviors in you know 10 we years? were talking about this before we started recording as well about buying behavior in support of local brands and how much is that related to like 
this awareness of your local economy stagnating and the importance of like supporting local. Yeah. And just to add some some color around that, basically what Sharice and I were talking about this call I have actually right after uh, this recording where I, I have a friend of a friend who is working on sort of this global mm-hmm. brand was curious, what is the perception of this brand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Hong Kong and China? It's an American brand. So I think that there's a lot of interesting, like beyond the socialism slash consumeristic slant, it's also what effect will the current geopolitical landscape have on the way you consume and the origins of the brands you consume. All right, BCG, you know where to find us. I think that is a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Also, if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can email myself at sharice at makein.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at eugene at makein.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.